0: Welcome to The Classical Mind, a podcast about the great books. I'm your host for today, Father Wesley Walker, and unfortunately our other host, uh, Dr. Jared Henderson, is unable to join us this evening. But today we're very excited to be talking about our first American work from the canon, the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, an American slave. And to aid our discussion, we have a very special guest joining us today, Dr. Anika Prather. Dr. Prather is an English professor at Howard University, the director of high-quality curriculum and instruction at John Hopkins University, and founder of Living Water School, a classical Christian school in Southern Maryland. She's written two books, Living in the Constellation of the Canon, The Lived Experiences of African American Students Reading Great Books, Literature, and the Black Intellectual Tradition with Dr. Angel Parham. Welcome to The Classical Mind, Dr. Prather.
1: Thank you so much.
0: We're so excited to have you tonight. I guess to start out uh, our discussion about Frederick Douglass, um, could you tell us about your personal encounter with Douglass and his works? When did you first read him? What sort of impact has he had on you?
1: I mean, his work has been, excuse me, astounding for me because um, I discovered him at a time where I was personally falling in love with reading uh, classical texts. And... um, was just feeling kind of embarrassed by this new interest um, because <clears throat> I knew what society was saying about their being irrelevant to black people. Perfect, and um, and I um was told by professors, and at the time I was working my uh, dissertation, my PhD, and that this is relevant, irrelevant to black people. And around that time, I began to discover various black authors who found um themselves connected to these texts and inspired by these texts in their work of activism. And one of those was um, Du Bois. And then from him, I I found uh, Frederick Douglass. And even though I had read, and this is so interesting, a lot of people read his autobiography and totally miss a very important part of his story. They know about the part of him teaching himself to read, gaining that literacy, becoming this great orator. But there's a skipping over of the philosophy of education that he embraced for himself, even though he was self taught and he had seen how uh the master's children were educated and learned that the best way to learn was classically, so he was self taught in classical education, and he talks about that um in his autobiography when he talks about discovering the Colombian orator <clears throat> and how he was inspired by the writings of the speeches of Cicero and so many others uh, as a way to, to be inspired to um, use oration as a tool for liberation, oration as a tool for um, abolition and to fight this battle. And he, um, after reading the dialogue between a master and a slave, which is found in the Columbian orator, is when he said, I'm going to use logic. I'm going to use this as a way to convince white people to set their slaves free and you begin to track. So if you, if you gain that foundational understanding and then track his journey from that point, then you understand why he was such a great orator and he was um, so intent on using that tool as a means for fighting this fight. And so that knowledge pushed me even further into embracing classical education um, as a way to educate the Black community.
0: That is so cool. So I think one of the things that we love about the canon and the great books here at The Classical Mind is that by engaging with them, by reading and, and, and engaging in conversation, um, we become more human. Yes. Um, and so I think to to help start our conversation, um, I was wondering if we could maybe look at Douglas and and the theme of dehumanization um, in the book, which comes out uh, quite frequently. And and I think there are kind of two main ways that this happens at, 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 throughout the work, which is that he, he often depicts the dehumanization of slavery, mm. but he also not, not only on the slave, but also on the slave owners yes. and what it does to them. Yeah. So perhaps we could talk just a little bit about some of the imagery, um, the dehumanization of the slave first, and then we'll talk about what it does to the, to the owners.
1: Well, Um, I, I am so thankful you're saying that because so many people see this as mm -hmm. one-sided somebody, um, a really sweet song and i know she didn't mean anything negative by it and i want to be careful that she understands that i see that but she uh messaged me on social media i am i am so thankful that your people were liberated right and i said yes but we all were and i i believe frederick Douglass really helped me to see how racism, Jim Crow, oppression, slavery um, destroyed all of us, all of our ancestors and ushered in a real darkness and ugliness into America's humanity. And so I am, when I, a lot of people will ask why are you so gracious or why are you not angry is my mind has changed a lot over the years that I no longer look at it as blacks against whites, but people against racism. And that we are all are on this journey to purge ourselves, purify ourselves from what that demon has done to America's humanity. So I'm so thankful you're the, literally, outside of myself, the first person to initiate that perspective for a conversation. So thank you. <laughs> oh,
0: I love it. I love it. That's great. So um, so I guess one of the things throughout the book is he – well, I, one of the clearest examples of dehumanization, I mm. think. Um, I, I, he he gives some, I think, really graphic depictions of of yes. beatings, but there's a really subtle – uh, one um, in chapter eight, kind of to open the book up, he's talking about the valuation process. Yes. Um. And he he literally says men and women, old and young, married and single were ranked with horses, sheep and swine. Uh, yes. There were horses and men and cattle and women, pigs and children all holding the same rank in the scale of being. Yes. Yes. And we're all subjected to the same narrow examination. So yes. we see very I mean, this idea of chattel and there's no there's no real distinction there, yes. um, but he does he does get a little bit more specific. Like he also talks about his master, Thomas Ald, who wouldn't give his uh, slaves enough food, which was a practice that was viewed even as cruel by the other slave owners in yes. Maryland at the time. And of course, um he talks about his own when he was with mr covey i think is when he talks about how his spirit is beaten down yes um his intellect languished you know all these feeling feeling the effects of this fully um but i guess i was wondering about some of those more graphic depictions for example his depiction of the of the beating of the of the one woman um what is the what is the effect of Making people see that, because, I mean, at this time, I mean, especially in the north or, or in parts of the south where like in the cities where they wouldn't have had um, plantations and things yes. like that, th- these images may have been quite shocking to people. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, so I what's think, the value of that?
1: I think the to see the depravity of what has happened in this country and what people have allowed to happen in this country. I mean, I, I think that's one of the things people don't think about a lot is that black people the enslaved person was considered livestock i mean men were called bucks (laughs) in the slave market oftentimes they were set on the auction block naked and white slave owners would come and examine their whole body their teeth their body as if they were examining a new bull a new cow or sheep. And this and and, and 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 just like if a farmer has bred some sheep and they would take the, the, the precious lambs of that sheep and sell it to another farm to be used, this is how they justified separating families because they saw us they did not see us as oh I'm separating this mom from her husband or children. These were animals to them and so the separating of children oftentimes that's how frederick douglass his mother had him and he was immediately from birth taken and put on another plantation just like a farmer would take a child after their wean uh, uh not a child but take a a, 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 a cat um a calf, as soon as it's weaned, or a sheepdog, as soon as it's weaned, and send it off to another farm. That's just what they did to the enslaved person. So, so Douglas describing these things. I mean, they, they ate out. Slaves ate out of troughs a lot of times. They did not sit at a table in their little slave cabin and say grace at a table. They were eating in the same troughs as the pigs, and so. Um, this went on for, for over 100 years. And so you have a whole uh, uh, people group that lived under this type of dehumanization for centuries. And so, and we wonder why there's always a struggle. <clears throat> and I think Douglas really wanted to make sure his readers and listeners understood exactly the, the the evil that we are fighting this is this is not something just oh let's just free those people it's this is let's end an entire mentality that dehumanizes another person
0: yeah, that must have been pretty shocking I know I guess one critique I've heard and I'm curious if you uh, if you how you would respond to that, is that the the violence he depicts sometimes is gratuitous I guess in such a way as as to perhaps. Mm, perhaps uh impede the actual point that he's trying to make mm. in that uh so for example the, the the overly cruel beating um may not have spoken to every experience you know oh, well, i know so and so has slaves, but they don't do that
1: yes <laughs> well i think and i I think <laughs> this is the thing I actually had someone. To kind of connect with what I'm trying to say Um, That's one of the things that a lot of people Will write in their books When they try to justify or talk about How slavery wasn't that bad Um, Or when they talk about George Washington Being a nice slave owner I always say a nice slave owner Is an oxymoron The two cannot coexist in the same sentence You cannot be nice And own a person (laughs) Um, And so this is one of my issues with, say, Phyllis Wheatley's family, even though they treated her nice, they owned, she was not the only slave they owned, they owned people. And so I think uh, Frederick Douglass maybe was giving these extremes to just see how bad it can be, and that even if it was just a few people being treated that way as a country, we should not be okay with that. We should not be okay with a system that allows for that to happen any place, whether it's a lot or not. And so the depravity that happened with dehumanizing people, even though there's gradations of that, you know, it happens in different ways, in different forms. You have some that are so nice. One of the things I love about Uncle Tom's cabin is she writes about a nice slave owner, but she does a great job showing that he's really not that nice. Right? So if Tom... He was part of a family. His, his master and wife loved him. He was faithful to his master. But they thought nothing of sending him away from his wife and children. And even tried to tell him, you got to understand, I'm trying to pay off some debt. You don't want me to lose everything I have, do you? And so, you know, and so Frederick Douglass is really depicting... The levels, the different, you know, he, I think what he does in his book, is he shows nice. Like, he showed how nice the slave master's wife was to him at first. So, he shows different forms of niceness in slavery, you know, but he also shows the extremes. Because at the end of the day, it's all very, very evil and all very ugly. And anyone in this day and time who tries to... um say slavery was used to bring salvation to black people Um, it was used to civilize us to educate us to make our lives better the slave masters made sure they were fed and clothed and had shelter and they didn't you know they were taken care of just right that even alone you're saying that we're, we're not smart enough and capable enough to just take care of ourselves why do I need a white person to care for me to feed me I'm just as smart and capable as any person. So those kinds of mentalities are dealt with, I feel, in the book. Even as we're reading the book and we are looking at how he taught himself to read, he is proving to the master and everyone who's reading That I am so smart that in the face of the master who said, I shouldn't know how to read, I taught myself to read not just anything, but classic texts, texts that are for scholars, college graduates. As an enslaved child with no teacher, I'm able to to do, I'm just as capable. And then finally, in conclusion, Douglas's um, autobiography really addresses Thomas Jefferson's thoughts on black people. You know, he wrote this essay notes from the state of Virginia where there's this really big section on his views of black people. And he saw us as not smart. Um, we smelled bad. We're very of a very inferior race. And he explains uh, quote unquote, lots of sarcasm inserted here scientifically <laughs> why we are inferior. And Thomas Jefferson was actually known as being a very humane slow slave owner. And so, but he, you know, and, and, but yet he was sexually taken advantage of a 14 year old girl, but, but in his mind, in the minds of people who read that story, they would like, say, oh, he, she, she didn't want to leave. She, he treated her, he gave her a room next to his, but he thought nothing, you know, and so I think where I'm going with it is this, is a lot of times the way the unconscious way people see black people as inferior. It's sometimes it's some of the most well-meaning, sweetest people still see black people as inferior. It's a very unconscious thing. And that goes back to your first point of us all being healed and freed from what this thing has done to all of us.
0: I'm reminded of there's a a philosopher and theologian named Herbert McCabe who says, you know, basically that love requires equality. A priori, yes. it requires yes. equality. So you can't have a loving slave master um, <laughs> yes. because the very act of slave owning is denying that, that equality. And so love becomes impossible until Sometimes. you give up. I mean, perhaps, I guess we could say in brief moments, you know, the the, the slave owner may come to a, a cognitive dissonance where they, they can't quite put all the pieces together. but. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. I think on that, um, and
1: even 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 when they say things like, and the reason why I speak so passionately about this was I had, um, and many people have heard this story before, but I grew up in a Christian school, going to a Christian school my whole life, my whole education, K twelve education, and we had Bible teachers teach us, you know, slavery was the best thing that could have happened to us. God used it to save black people, and I'm a Christian. I'm a Bible believing Christian, not you know, um, but in this life you have to be careful of um sometimes christians can 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 come off as being elitist just because they're christian as if a person's belief systems do not matter now someone's gonna really probably have a problem with what i'm saying uh, because i am a christian i believe the bible is true and i believe jesus is real and i believe that but we gotta be careful when you have people groups that have centuries and millennia of worshiping in a certain way that is such an integral part of their culture. And so one of the things that has been done within, with, with with the system of slavery to justify it, and I, I actually have still heard people say this now, <laughs> um, but thank God they got saved as— Whatever Christianity that was that allowed for enslavement was not Christianity. So did they really? You know, I mean, that's, that's not because the Christianity I know in Leviticus says a man who kidnaps a person and sells them into slavery should be put to death. So what religion was that that allows for you to de- dehumanize another person, the same person that Jesus would die for? and so you know we have to you know all, that whole the entire theory around this <clears throat> type of slavery where people want to glorify it as being some type of heroic act is a, is the most horrible evil fallacy i have ever heard of in my entire life and and we all need to be delivered from thinking that is something to even utter and believe in
0: yeah it strikes me it's in um Christianity in, in enslaved communities is something I've found to be very compelling to study. And, you know, I mean, it wasn't like um, the the masters would teach their slaves – Pure Christianity, or even really the same Christianity yes. that they were taught, yes. it was intentionally twisted. Yep. It was intentionally warped. Parts of the Bible were taken out when yes. they were taught to enslave yep. people. Like there were, no, there was no Exodus. You know, there um, yes. and, and other certain certain parts of Scripture were, were often um, omitted. Yes, and. Uh, and And the emphasis was always on you know slaves obey your masters and and yes. versus taken out of context and um, and just totally misused and and misappropriated. yeah, but even in the midst of that, even being taught that, um, it seems like enslaved communities in, inherently knew that wasn't that wasn't right. And so they were able to create their own sort of lexicon yes. and yes. Um, their own religion. Yeah, yeah, and 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 in many ways, we're so much closer to yes. the historic Christian faith than. Yes what they were being fed by their by their horrible masters
1: yeah i mean a lot of it was you know you have frederick Douglass was part of a tradition of black people teaching themselves to read and a lot of times these blacks who taught themselves to read would be going to be pastors and teachers and they would teach the true word so even though there's the slave bible that removes exodus You still have the Negro spiritual that says, go down, Moses, way down in Egypt land. So they knew they knew the word. They knew their master was not giving them true Christianity. And so um, this is something this is a topic very dear to me, my. I belong to a non-denominational church right now, but my family church, the, the church of my, my father grew up in, the, the church my grandfather was a pastor and uncles have been pastors and it, we've been a part of this denomination it's been a part of the McKinney family. That's my maiden name is the Kojic church, the church of, of God in Christ. Now I am not going to try to give a whole history lesson. My cousins will have my head if I try, because I did not grow up in the Kojic church and there's so much more I need to learn. So my cousins who are still ministers in the Kojic church, I pray I'm getting this little bit of information correct. If you're listening, um, but it did come out of that tradition. The Kojic Church is beautiful because it is not one that has tried to be a part of another white denomination. It was birthed out of the enslaved people's theology. And I'm very proud to have that in my background. Um. And, and I love the history of that, of these different churches or the, the AME Church, the African Methodist Episcopal Church. These are churches that attempted to get closer to the truth of God's word and how the Lord sees us all as equal. And that this misuse of scripture to say "Slaves obey your masters or who who missed and twist who misrepresented and twisted up the curse of Ham, which is really the curse of Canaan, and all of these things, and it may seem like well, why would that happen back then if i'm I'm not fifty, and I sat as a child in Christian schools that taught this in Bible class, where I was the I was one of few black children that inter- attended those schools of about, and let's say 20 or 30, 20 students in the class. And if I was taught that, and I can remember it, there were white little girls and boys in those same classes that got the same Bible lesson. I hope you all who are listening can hear where I'm going with this. And so those people, unless someone has come to that person who's now grown and said to them, that theology you received in that little Christian school was sinful. It was wrong. Remove that from your unconscious self. They are still unconsciously living with the thinking that, my brown skin means I'm inferior. Unless there has come a point in time where you have renounced that and acknowledged that teaching was wrong. Now, if you say, well, I never remember having, I don't remember teaching that. I went to most of the Christian schools in the DC area and every single one taught that. So so my point is this, is that going back to what you said earlier, we all have been hurt by this this sin that's, that has shaped America, right? And we all have to do the work of, of repro- deprogramming and reprogramming ourselves to understand that we are all fearfully and wonderfully made, based on Psalms 139, and that for God so loved the world, not just, and that, and that white people are not the children of Israel, and neither are the black people. Because you know, sometimes there's a flip. You know, we see all of the African representation in the Bible, and we will also take on this persona of, "Oh, God favors us because we're all up in Scripture." But no, that's not true either. That's false theology too. None of us is righteous. No, not one. But God loves us all equally, and felt we were all worth Him sacrificing His life. So you know, these are things that um, it's not meant to be bitter or to communicate an unforgiveness. That's not what I feel at all. But because of the education I know that has been out there, I know that all of us need to be reprogrammed.
0: Exactly. Um, On that note, uh, this idea of, of how damaging these views can be when they're held, I think one of the most, Tragic characters in the book is Sophia Ald, who is the, um, she's the wife of I forget all the familial relations between the the family that that uh, Frederick Douglass was sort of born into, but they, she had never owned a slave before, no, and so when Douglas first goes to their house, she's very nice to him. In fact, she begins to teach him to read because she just doesn't know any better. She
1: doesn't know.
0: And then when her husband kind of figures out what's going on, he, he gets on her case, tells her she can't do that. Um, and, uh, and, and over time, she begins to evolve um, or devolve, really. Um, yes. So he even says that, that at a certain point, um, the, the angelic face gave place to that of a demon. Yes. He, goes on, he goes on to say exactly what we've been saying. Slavery proved as injurious to her as it did to me.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: So it's a very, it's a very She's a very tragic character in the book.
1: Yes. And I I love his book because he's not, I, for someone who was never educated to know how to educate in a way where you're including all different types of perspectives is just amazing. And I, I've, I appreciated him. That was when I read that chapter, that is when, That is one of the times where that was part of my journey to developing grace in my heart for all people, even white people, because there are there are people who this is just what they grew up with. This is just how they were taught. It it wasn't an an intentional of I want to see black people as inferior. And so I've got to teach myself this way. They were born into a family like this. Sometimes I'll say things like, um, you know, when you see pictures of lynchings. And oftentimes you'll see children at the lynchings pointing up at the charred body of a black person and smiling. That child is somewhere, is probably alive now with children and grandchildren. And if they're not alive, they live long enough to raise a family. And so even though time may have tried to, the brain is an interesting thing, try to forget that it is seared into the DNA of his brain where our lives are devalued even though he may well I have black friends they may say they may think i've been to a black church i've I've worked with black people you know i 've been very very nice to black people, but there are some things that they may think in the unconscious it's kind of like um there are times I'm a, here's a good example of what i mean um this happens to me all the time is if I sometimes find myself in a place where i 'm the minority and there is most times and ignoring of me. And, and and they're they're not mean. They're not saying oh I don't want to look at you and I don't want to talk to you. There there is an unconscious I can't see you. You're brown I can't they're not they're not thinking that. They don't even realize it in themselves. And I'm gonna give you I was at a place recently. I was the only brown persons there. There were other mothers there um doing some volunteer work. And um I went into the space where a certain group of mothers were and I'm standing right next to this woman. And she reaches over me to shake the hand of the white woman on the other side of me and says, hi, I'm so-and-so. Are you one of the volunteers? Can you help me understand such and such and such? And I actually had come in and said, hi, moms, I'm a volunteer, too. No one said anything. Just overlooked me. And now at first, I was very hurt. I was very angry because I'm like, oh, here we go. This This happens often to me. But, again, going back to what you're saying about Sophia Auld and understanding people's upbringing, on those hours we were there, by the time we left, we were friends. They began to finally – it was like they had to adjust the focus on their eyeballs. Oh, hey. You know, and so – and that's just a subtle example. But I had to do a lot of work that day to first – I I am determined not to respond in my initial emotion that I'm feeling in those moments, but to study the situation, to recognize that a lot of people are like Sophia Ald, And so I, I didn't say, Hey, don't you see me? How I spoke. You didn't say anything. I didn't, I didn't do that. I said, I've got a couple of hours here to work together. And I just, Was a person of peace and we worked together at one point the mother got lost and i ran back to get her you know oh we're this way come and she said thank you so much for coming back to get me i really appreciate that and somebody may say why are you doing all that she didn't deserve it no but jesus didn't deserve i didn't deserve jesus to die for me that's my mentality so and and, but before long there was the adjustment of the eyeballs and we were all equally human in that space but I am hoping for a day where moments like that don't happen anymore.
0: So Sophia is is perhaps the most tragic because of this kind of slide into depravity, I guess we could yes. say. But one other character who's, who's just as scary is Mr. Covey. To me, as far as as far as the dehumanization goes. So, Mr. Covey, and we'll talk about him again, I think, in a few minutes when we talk a little bit about the complicity of religion. Um, But he was a professor of religion. He was a a devout Methodist. um, And. He was often loaned slaves from the wealthy plantation owners. He wasn't wealthy, but they he, they they would loan him as slaves so that he could break them. Basically, he was that was what his expertise was. Yes. Um, and I think it's very interesting how Douglas describes him. So there's really uh, with, with Sophia, Douglas can kind of see the good in her that gets. Uh, Yes, uh, slowly chipped away at because of yeah. slavery. But with Covey, it's uh, he's already too calloused. He's already too yeah. calcified by Ooh. the time Douglas encounters him. But the imagery that Douglas uses to describe Covey frequently is, is this kind of serpentine imagery. Yeah. He slithers, he like yeah. pokes his head up from the corner of the field where he was hiding to see if the slaves were actually working when yes. they were supposed to be. Um, and so it's like, Ooh. not only is he just cruel and, and without a good bone, he's, he is in a sense, a devil character, yeah. you know? I mean, he's very yeah. much like the, like the serpent in the garden, I think. Yeah.
1: You know, and it my I mean, it makes you think when you read, when I read that and the story of, I kind of, there's so many similarities between Douglas's true story and Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom Cabin. Um, And I've, and and, and can I go back to Sophia Alden connected to what I'm saying to what you're saying? Because you kind of get that same um, evolution happening. She she literally turns evil. Like it's in her face. And he says that she began to actually enjoy treating him mean. When he she went from wanting to love him to enjoying treating him mean. So when I think about her and I and she he, that evolution is such a great illustration. So when I think about her and I, I wonder if Kovey at one point was this innocent <clears throat> being. But the more he sold his soul to this system, did that demon literally, spiritually take over him? You know, I because I when I think about the stories of like Emmett Till, just the whole some of the if you read some of the stories of how people were lynched, just the the real gruesome way, and a lot of people who did lynchings were Christian, were religious folk church going folk I I feel there is I hope it's okay to say a demonic influence there and so how do we free this is why going back to what you said at the very beginning I love this conversation is a freeing of ourselves from that influence to really be redeemed from that influence I'm not trying to say people who are listening who aren't brown like me are all demon-possessed. That's not what I'm saying, or on their way to being demon-possessed. But I will say that the longer you or we ignore the doing the work that needs to be done to rid ourselves of this in every way, the harder our hearts will become. And I just... I don't know why I care about this so much, Father. I don't I don't know why this means a lot to me. Some people may not understand why am I having these conversations with people? Why am I being so patient? I don't even understand it myself. All I know is number 1, I want God to work forgiveness in my heart. Number 2, I want to see my people also experience that feeling of forgiveness. Not being forgiven, but feeling forgiveness to others. And third, I want to see those who aren't brown like me, who still need redeeming to be delivered.
0: I'm reminded a little bit of, uh, I don't know if you've ever read the German uh, philosopher Martin Buber. (laughs) He has this great book called I and Thou. And he basically says, you know, we, we have this kind of very modern view of the self that's totally isolated from any connection, you know, I'm me. And then the connections I have are sort of accidental connections, but he says, that's not true that, um, that, that I only exist in relationship to you and I can relate to you in two different modes. I can either relate to you as a you, or I can relate to you as an it. And when I relate to you as an it, I put you under the microscope. I analyze you. I treat you like you're not really human. Oh but if I relate to you as a you, I approach you as an other, um, as as someone instead of something. Um, and how I relate to you will automatically inform who I am. Yes. And so there is no me without. You And the way I enter into that relationship and live into that relationship really matters in terms of shaping me. And so you see that with a Covey character where, yeah, maybe at one point there was some humanity in him, but over time he had to suppress that and stamp it down and kill it in order to continue doing what yeah. he's doing. And that's what's so terrible. And I think it, it opens the door to the larger question about the complicity of religion throughout the book. I mean, Douglas doesn't really pull many, many punches when he talks no. about religion no. rightfully. So, right. Yeah. I mean, when it's misused, he says religion actually uh, actually makes enslavement worse. Yeah. So Thomas Ald, one of his other owners converted to Christianity. And once he became, a devout christian is when he became worse as yes. an owner because he now had this kind of righteous yep. pretension yep. that he could yep. use to cover Ooh. his Ooh. his cruelty Ooh. um and and i think the the cognitive dissonance there is really really quite tragic i mean you yeah. see it actually in in the way it works out with thomas Ald, because he begins to take out his cruelty on um henny one of the one of the yes, women slaves yes. who had burned her hands when she was younger and she couldn't use them, and her weakness, Douglas says, was a constant offense to him.
1: Yes. which is
0: such such a subversion of, you know, the great themes of Christianity.
1: Yes.
0: Um, and so yeah, I I I, mean, I found that to be very interesting.
1: And we see that in this in social media. Sometimes my heart mm-hmm. breaks because I see people they'll have in their bio line. Loves God, Jesus lover, follow of Jesus Christ, but spouting some of the most vile, disrespectful, rude things when it comes to this political season we're in. Or we have somehow set ourselves up in this faith, I would call it a religion, this belief system that says Christians are better than everyone else and we have license to treat everyone else terribly this this attitude that was birthed in america that created these hierarchies of human beings has just is destroying us destroying our faith it's destroying people's view on the beauty of christianity because we're living it out the way we're living it out is the antithesis to how jesus lived it out
0: interestingly there's a there's this really bright moment and it, it's somewhat fading in the book but i i thought it was a good example of kind of i think what you're what you're trying to push us toward which is when he's with mr freeland when he gets sold to mr freeland yes. there it develops this really wonderful community of the enslaved people there yes mr freeland wasn't as cruel as some of the other masters yes. so i think he let them have a little bit more by way of yes. space but um Yes. But, but Douglas talks about all the noble souls, how the loving and brave hearts that made up yeah. this community. He said we were linked and interlinked with each other. He says, I love them with a love stronger than anything I have experienced since I believe we would have died for each other. Yeah, which really is the ethic. Uh, at the heart of of Jesus teaching and yes. um, and um, and certainly is that kind of humanizing connection that we yes. are talking about. It's yep. it's the antithesis of the hypocrisy of the enslaved um, of the slavers um, yes. and their churches, you know, that we're promulgating this this way of thinking and being yeah, yeah. Um, so i thought that was really interesting and, and and a really bright moment it it wasn't very long in the book it's it's yes. kind of a, brief, a brief description point. but mm-hmm. it, you can tell he that really impacted him quite and a he bit could
1: read openly there like he was not mm-hmm. afraid of losing his life for reading he could read openly to those who are around him and to practice they practiced orations i think you know like it that was a like that little reprieve there and i Another thought just jumped into my mind. Um, When we talk about right now the whole uh, uproar over CRT or the 1619 Project or um, How to Be an Anti-Racist and any of these, but White Fragility, all these books that are out now, um, there's kind of this um, uh, push to say... Um, To make policies that don't allow for the truth of the black experience to be told. Um, And in any reference to black history um, is deemed as dangerous. And so people who stand behind, I hope it's okay to say this and you can feel free to Erase it if you feel like it's not appropriate for the show, but and I won't be offended. I don't, don't want to get you in trouble either. But um, but um, I w- I'll say this, and then you can decide how to, to deal with it. When we support those political figures, now this is this is not a political statement because I'm not advocating for being Democrat or Republican. I'm not saying that because there are people on both sides who would be okay with hearing Black history. You know, I know of Republicans who have no issue with hearing Black history and teaching kids Black history. But we are rallying around politicians who want to cancel my story, who don't want children to learn it, who somehow think it's dangerous. And so, people who are doing that are actually participating in continuing this curse that has plagued us for these centuries of enslavement and so one way to free ourselves is not to look at canceling it but learning how can we how can we teach the story in a way that's safe and healthy for children to learn these true stories without feeling guilt taking it from them completely is not going to solve anything but giving them the truth in love in a way that doesn't, I do believe that it is. I do now on the other side. I do believe that there are people who are doing this very wrong and in a very damaging way. I do believe that, and I'm sure I'm going. Some brown people are going to be offended at me saying that too. I feel like I just offend everybody on both sides, but you know, Jesus loves me. But I do believe that there is a way that it should be done. The way I'm seeing it, sometimes doing being done is not healthy, which probably does incite this. Shut it all down mentality but i want to encourage people let's explore No, everyone's story is important the native person's story is important black people's story is important hispanic people's story is important let's all learn each other's stories and how our stories interwoven have made this beautiful american tapestry that is not just white that the story of america is a very diverse story and people who want to to hinder the world from understanding that are actually making the problem worse, you
0: know? I think you're completely right. And, I mean, it goes it, – I, I think it really does go back to everything we've been talking about, right? The idea of wanting to silence certain stories yes. in favor of other stories, <clears throat> really it becomes that that I, it – Rather than an I yeah. thou. Um yes. and we talk about the you know, this this beautiful thing we have called the canon. Yes. Um someone like Frederick Douglass is in the canon and belongs in the canon. Yes. And Du Bois belongs in the canon. Yes. And um, you know, I think we would try and rightly defend the canon from those who would say we shouldn't have yes. one or that, exactly. that the way it's currently constructed is bad. Yes but that kind of iconoclasm that you get from from certain crowds is is being replicated in in the same circles you're talking about that want to cut out parts of the canon or sacrifice parts of the canon for a larger political agenda. I mean, no part of the canon should really make us feel comfortable. Um, That's the point of it. You know, we're being confronted with, with the human story in various incarnations and iterations. And, uh, and so there will be, there, it will be uncomfortable. And we see that in Douglas's own story, right? The more he learns, the more he um, takes in, the more uncomfortable he is where he is yes um so as he begins to read in fact that kind of opens to the next section of of what i wanted to talk about which is that his his will for liberation you know as he he even says this because because that's why the his master told sophia not to teach him to read as soon as he learns how to read he's not gonna be content
1: right Right.
0: And then he starts to learn to read and he says, yeah, he was right. I'm not he content. Right. I want to go. <laughs> he um, said it was
1: like a glaring trumpet. Yes. Yes.
0: And, and there are times where he almost laments it. Like yes. early on, he, yes. he's like, he's like, this is a burden to me. Yep. It, it feels like a curse rather than a blessing, yes. which actually makes me think, because we, we did our last episode was on Plato's Republic.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: Or not, not the Republic. the Apology. Sorry. um. And, and there's that idea that with, with Socrates, as he's going to his death, it's like, you know, truth calls us to make certain sacrifices for yeah. it. And, yes. um, and I think Douglas gets to the point where he has to, he has to either escape or die. Yes. Um, he has to either maintain, insist on his humanity in the face of, of dehumanizing. I mean, he has the one master who, who tries to beat him and he says, no, and he fights no. back. Yes. Which I mean, yes. sh- given the, given the context he really i mean probably shouldn't have survived that
1: yes um,
0: but but he insists on on doing it so i i i find his will that that, that will power that he has to be something that's so um admirable i guess
1: it is I, I and he's so gracious because as he's telling the stories you don't find any hint of bitterness like he, like okay. When we talk about um, people who would want to cancel the clan, the canon. What I love about Frederick Douglass, what I see in him is his experience doesn't make him hate his country. It doesn't make him discount the country, and it doesn't make him discount the faith or the the textbook or not the textbooks, but the literature. That has shaped the country. He has basically said, I think we've, I think you're seeing this wrong. This is what it's supposed to be. And so he's so passionate about that. And I am inspired to take on that same passion. This is not a time to cancel anyone's story because they're not brown, or because they are brown. It is, that's not the, and, and you know, I'm really shocked at in the classical education world, uh, which is where, that's where I hang out. I know people think I'm crazy. You see a big move to not include diverse stories into the great conversation. And that seems also antithetical to classical education, because when you think about all of the things we have to read and have our students read, like we're reading some pretty controversial stuff. I mean, I remember one Thing, I, we had to read something from Marx. I mean, we're reading controversial stuff, and they tell you you have to engage in Socratic dialogue. This builds critical thinking. You know, for those of us who believe in the classical trivium—the you know, the rhetoric, the logic, the grammar phase—you know, you you get to, you're getting students to a place where they can engage with literature they may not agree with and can voice their own opinions. But that same group of people will say, "But don't read anything from Black people because that's CRT." What a great way to practice true classical education than to expose children to reading this literature, to helping them hear the stories of others and bringing it into conversation with your story and the stories of others in the canon and that their worldview may be shaped. Are we trying to shape racists who are classically educated? Like I'm trying to figure out what, what are we doing? Like what is what really is classical education? Like if we're looking at Socrates, who was not a perfect man, I know he wasn't, but a lot of times classical people will go to him as an example of how to teach. And you look at some of his dialogues, and he'll he may say, Hey Mino, you know, what do you think virtue is? Or Mino, however you say his name, Mino, I think is how you say it. What do you what what is virtue? He's calling people who are just like walking down the street, like who are walking, you know, he's calling people over who uh, who are walking past and the part of just kind of hanging out in the community out there. Or um, when you look at Jesus Christ, you know, he uh, he went to Samaria. And when his disciples said, oh, you're going to Samaria, why would you go over there? He's like, I got some business to take care of here. And he went, he knew exactly, and he went to the well at the time where he knew the rejected would come to the well to draw water. And he had a conversation with them. And he went to Matthew, the tax collector, and he said, come follow me. And so this to me is classical education. When they called Jesus a rabbi, he wasn't sitting in the temple. He was sitting out in the grass talking to anyone who was willing to listen, and he was willing to engage in conversation with them. So I, 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 am, I, I am concerned that those often in classical education who are also resistant to hearing the story of the Native people, who are resistant to hearing the story of Black people and, and, and their experience and the experience of their ancestors— is that really classical education? Oh, I said. I had somebody laughing. I said, if you can have your students read Greek myths, I mean, those are full of so much debauchery and foolishness. You will have. I mean, they they. I, Children are reading Greek myths, and you're afraid of a child hearing about slavery. But you will read a Greek myth. Help me understand, sir. Please, father, help me. <laughs>
0: No, you're, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. In fact, I wanted to ask about, um, the act of reading. Uh, that is such a, a shift for Douglas, right? When he begins to read, um, he, the act of it, I mean, the act of learning itself is, is subversive because obviously he wasn't supposed to have learned and he, he really made it his life's mission to do whatever he could to learn um, but what is it about having that ability to read that is so liberating in and of itself?
1: I feel like his eyes were open. Like I feel, um, you know, Du Bois describes it as um, a veil. And when you think of veil, you think of um, you can't really see the full picture. And when Du Bois, in his essay, when he says, I sit with Shakespeare and he wins not you know, he talks about how reading these classics made him rise above the veil. And many people read that and think elitism. Now, John, you know, Du Bois does have some, he does have, I'm not going to deny that he does come off as elitist. But I think we can really connect it. In this way that he's saying we don't have to stay where they say we have to stay down here in this partial understanding of humanity while they have the full canon, while they have the full access to the stories of humanity. We, too, can have access to this. And so Frederick Douglass, when he read the Columbian orator and other texts, texts, he found himself. Enlightened, the, the the veil was taken off, and he could see. And the reason why I know that to be true is that's one of the things one of my students said in my dissertation is, I finally feel like I have access to an understanding that other people do not have. And when I've taught at Howard and any of any other students, sometimes I'll get a, a, t- a message from a student from Howard. I was driving along and I saw this Latin phrase, or I saw this this statue someplace, or I was watching the news and this man said this word, and I totally knew that was from a Socratic dialogue, or I totally knew that this is the context of what he's trying to say. And they feel so liberated. And so, um, you know, this type of education. is the education this is this is a phrase that is often <laughs> often said in classical education uh, classical education circles. I've heard Doug Wilson often say this classical education is the education for a free man. but yet we still don't believe it is for everyone. and then we don't seem to want to include those who were brown who had this type of education and engaged in this great conversation too. We want to keep our young people from reading that literature. So my perspective when it comes to reading, and I think this was Frederick Douglass's perspective, is we cancel nothing. We expand. We include. We diversify. But we cancel nothing.
0: Yeah it seems like I mean if you're able to pick up a text and read you're able to transcend your circumstances right and so it does seem like there would be a vested interest in the in the in the sort of exploitative oppressive class <laughs> to prevent uh, the sort of subproletariat, you know, enslaved community from accessing that transcendence. Yes. Uh, because as soon as they do, I, I think, I think Douglas's experience wouldn't, isn't unique to him. I mean, it, it, that's the human experience. Once yeah. you begin to, once your imagination becomes formed, once you, once you get a vocabulary for certain ideas um, and and concepts and you realize, I mean, he even says that about the Columbian order. He's like, basically he he, he realizes what he had felt is true yeah because he's able to read uh, that he he understands he has a, an inherent dignity and value um that had been withheld from him by yeah. the by the larger society yeah. um so yeah it does seem it does seem like it's inherently um liberative then yes. um one kind of closing uh thing i wanted to discuss a little bit is is some of his use of irony um and then his his his, his um the use of deception and craftiness yes. throughout the book. Yeah. Um, so, so first, uh, his irony, which I think is interesting. Um, yeah. He makes a number of of comments throughout the book that I think would be I- ironic. Yeah. Um, so, like, uh, he's talking about how how unquestionable it was to teach a uh, an enslaved person to read. And he he throws in these little side comments, like he says, for it is almost an unpardonable offense to teach slaves to read in this Christian country. Or when describing the racism in Baltimore, he says, such remains the state of things in the Christian city of Baltimore. <laughs> you know, and you can you can just you can just yes. feel it dripping with the irony, you know. Right. Um, and, and he uses the he uses irony to show the absurdity of how. Christian white folks so violently opposed Sabbath school, right? They like ran them <laughs> off with sticks and pitchforks <laughs> and stuff. And he, he said, because they would have rather seen us engaging in wrestling and boxing and drinking whiskey rather than actually learning about God and acting yes. as intellectual, moral, and accountable beings.
1: Yes.
0: So he's just dripping with this, this sense of irony. Um, and I think he uses it very effectively
1: to oh. point out the
0: hypocrisy.
1: Oh my goodness. And, and I, I've really been studying his writings and hold on one second. The writings of, um, I'm gonna read something from you from Phyllis Wheatley. I, I believe that that process of doing that was a practice that was very common in literate, uh, black people. And, um, he, Ashley Harrison wrote this book called the, the Ebony Column, where he goes through the life of Anna Julia Cooper, Phyllis Wheatley, Frederick Douglass, and W.E.B. Du Bois, and, and the influence of the canon and or classics in their life. And he has this chapter when he gets to, I believe, Phyllis Wheatley, he called he he likens her use of the canon or classics to the Trojan horse. And I love that analogy because they often would hide, they would use this literacy they gain, <clears throat> To mask another message, so I'm gonna read something from you, for you. Phyllis Wheatley does the same thing. Um, hold on. So she she wrote this poem called "On Being Brought from Africa to America," right? And the entire one. Now this is a this is a poem that used to make me angry. I used to say, "Okay, you're putting down your heritage here," but I read it differently now that I understand this type of writing that we're talking about that Frederick Douglass was doing that she was actually, I, I feel she was probably being sarcastic or kind of using these words, uh, in a, with a double meaning. Right. And so, uh, I'm going to read the whole poem and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to try to insert some drama into, okay, here we go. I'm being brought from Africa to America. Twas mercy brought me from my pagan land. Now, you know, that, she probably heard white Christians say that. Taught my benighted soul to understand that there's a God, that there's a Savior too. Once our redemption neither sought nor knew, some view, but then she, but watch how she, she latches them in. She says, some view our sable race with scornful eyes. You see that? So she's, so their color, our color is a diabolic dye. And then she ends it with, remember, Christian, Negroes black as Cain may be refined and join the angelic train. Wow. <laughs> I love it. And they—they they all did that. It was—it was, a, it was yep. definitely a tool, and I can sense—I can feel that. Um, the more I studied Phyllis Wheatley, I feel like she had an attitude that only the, the a really keen person could pick up, because it comes—her sarcasm comes out a lot in her poetry, and I feel like she almost got a little kick out of people just reading it and saying, "Oh, look at this sweet little African slave. She's so smart, and she just loves us, and she's—and she sees that we're just here to help her." deliver her from her pagan life back in africa and i feel like the whole time she's thinking y'all think i'm stupid and so she and she and she weaves these words using classics as frederick Douglass does and and this is how they were able to be so outspoken about their cause without ended up being strung up in a tree is they, they use these words magically in a way to make people think they meant one thing, but they were really bringing another message out.
0: I love it. It's so clever. In fact, that kind of, so that, that dovetails into the deception and craftiness discussion, yes. right? So there are two big examples of, of this, I think throughout the book, Douglas is one example. I mean, there are times where he'll engage in deception or in sort of a crafty way of thinking, but there's yes. also Mr. Covey, I think who's yes. a foil for him, yes. right? Cause when Douglas does it, it's a survival tactic. It's a way of, it, it's, it's like Rahab and the spies yeah. in Joshua. Um, but Mr. Covey is deceptive and crafty, not to survive, but to exercise control and domination. Yes, yes. Right? So, so he he it, Douglas says that you kind of have to always be on your toes around him because he'll tell you, "Oh, I'm going to the town today, so I won't be around." But then, you know, an hour later, you see him in the corner of the field watching <laughs> everybody um, to make sure that they're doing their job. Or, or he tells the story of one enslaved person, I think, who was actually I don't think that was Mr. Covey uh the enslaved person who was owned by the uh by the big plantation owner and the guy stops him on the road one day and says oh who do you belong to and he says oh to mr so-and-so and And they never met because he had so many enslaved people and he said oh what do you think about him and he said oh he's not very nice (laughs) and then that guy ended up getting you know sold i think or something
1: um, as a result yeah
0: but but there's this idea of 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 um of deception, Mister Covey's so good at deceiving he can even deceive himself into thinking he's a good Christian yes. while he's ha- while he's raping, you know, enslaved women. Yes. Um mm.
1: Douglas mm. uses the
0: term adultery for that, but it's not a strong enough word, I don't think. No, no.
1: Um,
0: And of course, there's that analogy between Mister Covey and the snake earlier, yeah. Yeah. but I think it's I think it's interesting because Douglas, when he does use deception, it's a means to freedom. Yes. Um, like like when he uses the Sabbath School as a front yes teach the the other enslaved people how to read um yes. his shrewdness uh even it we even see shrewdness in his composing the narrative right because he has to pick and choose what he can and can't tell you yeah, yeah. um yeah he says he says we have we can't we can't render the tyrant aid yes not hold uh the light by which we he can trace the footsteps of our flying brother yes um So I just found that to be a really interesting uh, sort of relationship between the two characters uh, in
1: the book. Yes, 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 absolutely. I think the whole time that people were in, I think learning to read, because they say Nate Turner was a really strong reader, too. It was the one thing they could do, um, and no one could do anything about it. Like, once you learn to read, no one could ever take that from you. The most you could do was kill you, but you could never end their ability to read. And, and it was so, it was a very much, and then, and mastering literacy so much that you can uh, be so shrewd in how you weave words together. You know, um, Frederick Douglass, before he escaped, would sneak into the master's office and copy his penmanship in his ledger book. Until he got so good at it, he was able to write his own pass. You know, because you had to have a pass as a black. This is so dehumanizing. A black person could not just be walking around. You had to have like a hall pass to walk around the town. If you were caught outside of the plantation without a pass, you'd get in trouble. And so, um, so he created his own pass. And this, this, this reading of the canon, this mimicking how the master wrote, as a way. To liberate yourself as opposed to as as opposed to using it to assimilate, that that is the path I'm very interested in. Is them using this reading of classics for that purpose?
0: Love it. So as we kind of come to the end of our conversation, which has been so fun, by the way, I've Thank really you, really yes. enjoyed this. Um, Thank you. Let me share. I guess one one big question what can a student learn from Frederick Douglass today?
1: Mm. The power of reading. And 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 he it's actually his life proves why it is so important to read these texts. Some people, when they read that section or think of that section of him getting the Colombian orator, they think, you know, it's the only book he get his hand on, so he just picked up this random book. But he was very intentional. He chose classical reading. He knew the power that they held. And if they can liberate a man enslaved in the mid-1800s, What can they do for us with teachers and freedom? What can they do for us? And so I'm often baffled that people can look at these stories and still determine we need to cancel them. It, It is the most illogical argument. We need to do something about how brown voices are not included in that conversation or noted as being a part of that conversation, but how do you read all of these stories of like people like Frederick Douglass and determine these aren't relevant to us. These are not things we need to be teaching our children. These are not things we need to be reading. How do you look at someone who was responsible, who played a part in ending slavery and make that decision? Help me understand the logic, how people come to that. And so I asked that question to my Howard students. Do we still need to read these? And they said, No, we don't. No, we don't need to, because we can just read the books that our, our people have written, right? And I said, Okay, okay. So let's say we did that. If if most of the Black Panthers were inspired by many of the philosophers in the canon, and they use citations from these philosophers in their lectures, in their writings, do you really even understand what they're saying? That can you understand it? And they're like, oh, I never thought about it like that. And this is the thing. If they were coming up with an original thought, then I would say, yes, absolutely, we don't need to read it. But everyone up till now is in the great conversation. You know, they are citing. Now, sometimes schools and people who are on this agenda to say we want to be more culturally responsive choose books that aren't a part of the great great conversation. And I'm not saying this as if it's inferior, um, but they have lost that chain that links us to the beginnings of humanity and those human experiences that are foundational to who we are. And so my thought is, I don't think we should cancel those books either because that's new information, that's new human stories that we should read and appreciate. And I'm not even saying they're inferior, but we definitely shouldn't be cutting ourselves off from, from this, this seedbed that has given birth to a tree of all types of human beings that have uh, contributed to our existence.
0: Yeah, I completely agree with you. I, being rooted in the classics is not an excuse for snobbery towards things in the present. The yes. opposite Yes. It should free us up to engage yes. better and yes. read better. I completely agree with you.
1: Yes.
0: Um, yes, and that's something we are trying to do here with this yes. show. Is is yes. we want to foster a community that's thoughtful that can have those kind of conversations. Absolutely. Yes. yes. Well, as we, uh, as we end our time together, one thing that we like to do is a, a segment called "In Notes, where we talk about maybe a, a work or a film or, or an experience or something that has to do with the topic that we're talking about. So um, did you have anything uh, for the End Notes of today's episode?
1: Yes. I want to encourage everyone to read the works of Chinua Achebe. I have just discovered him this year, so I'm on this journey to read everything. So I've read uh, Things Fall Apart. I'm working through his memoir, There Was a Country, and then Arrow of God as well, which is kind of a continuation to Things Fall Apart. Um, he is so important because he's not, he hasn't been gone that long, but even though he's not from America, his love for the canon, he explains it so well. Now, he's from Nigeria. And his books are are to tell the story of the Igbo people. And he was often criticized for not writing his stories of his people in the Igbo language. But he chose... West, he said the Western language, English and Latin, and his classical, he talks about being classically educated, and his parents were classically educated, and they made sure all of their children were classically educated, and yet they still grew up to want to tell the stories of their own people, and he still was very much a part of his African religion and all of that. And he says that I chose this language, this literacy, so that I could be my own storyteller. And that no one will translate my story or the story of my people but us. And so Frederick Douglass mastering, and so that's a contemporary, clear explanation of another perspective of why Black people read classically. Because they were trying to own their story. They were trying to own that heritage, that history. They didn't want someone else to rewrite their history. This is why Frederick Douglass wrote his autobiography, like, what, like three times? He was like, I'm going to make sure you know me from my mouth. <laughs> and you're going to appreciate my story because I'm writing in perfect English, and everyone will know it's me. And Ola Uda Equiano, so you you see that chain, right? Chinua Achebe explains this is why I did it, and we can take his story and look at every other black liberator and influencer and world changer, what do they all have in common? They all wrote their story. We know a lot about the Black Panther because of Huey P. Newton's revolutionary suicide, as opposed to a white person writing that story. Say they were some violent people, they were just horrible. they walked around with guns and wore black all the time, scared us half to death. That's not the true story. But yet you can read the story, you can read the writings of Angela Davis and Huey P. Newton and others and learn, no, the story is we were created because we kept, our people kept being lynched and the police brutality was rampant and no one was protecting our people and we had no justice. So we created our own way of obtaining guns legally so we could protect our own communities. That's a very different narrative, isn't it? But the only way that narrative can be pushed out is if it's written in a universal language that all people can read and understand and won't reject because it's not their language. And so Chinua Achebe really demonstrates that in contemporary understanding, the importance of grasping this universal body of knowledge.
0: Love it. We'll definitely have to add that to the reading list. Yeah. Um so I, I cheated this time and I have two, but I'm gonna say it's because Jared's not here with us, so I get two. Um the first is The Spirituals and the Blues Ooh. by James Cohn. Yes. Um, and uh and so there's a we didn't really get a chance to touch on this too much, but there's a section in Douglas where he talks about song and the importance of song in the enslaved community yes. um cone's Ooh. study is of the spirituals that enslaved people sang and then also of um blues music and its importance Ooh. uh during jim crow and all that mm-hmm. it's an excellent study on those oh, things gorgeous. um it actually talks about some of the things that you were mentioning earlier dr pray there about yes. um about uh sometimes using double meanings Yep. In order to, uh, in order to um, say what you want to say without getting in too much trouble.
1: That was the practice.
0: Yep, yep. That was so the culture. It's a great little book. Uh, it's yes. not very long. It's only about 130 pages, but a uh, it's a really, really interesting book. Um, and he t- he calls the blues a secular spiritual.
1: Yes, is, is
0: what they are. And um, so he really ties a, a, a close connection between so those two. That
1: was my for my master's in music education. That was my project is tracing the story of the spiritual into the jazz, into the blues, into R&B, into American music. Oh, interesting. And that was it was it was, and you know, I'm so glad you brought that up because we've been talking about this double meaning and and that is, the, the spirituals are a perfect example mm. of this being such a part of our culture of using this English, this language mm-hmm. to be our own storytellers in a way that we could just be real sly with it. Yeah. You know?
0: Yep. Yep. It's a great little book. I yes. Combe, I really like a lot of what he wrote, but this is uh, especially good. Um, The other is uh <laughs> so my wife and I just finished watching a show from Showtime called Good Lord Bird okay. about John Brown. Oh. Um, and Frederick Douglass is a character in the show. He's played by the guy from Hamilton who plays um, Lafayette and Jefferson. Uh, yes. I forgot his name. Um it's escaping me, but he plays Douglas, okay. and does a pretty good job. I, some of the represent it, it. Um, the show overall has a kind of a uh, feel of like oh brother where art thou sort of. It's a it's a little like a Coen Brothers movie. It's yes. it's funny, but it's it's really well done. Uh, yes. Ethan Hawke plays John Brown, um, Ooh. and does an excellent job. Um, so W. B. Du Bois' biography on John Brown is one that I've been Ooh. reading lately. Yes. Um, Douglas, of course, got in a little bit of trouble. For his connection with John Brown and the raid on Harper's Ferry, uh, Douglas, of course, was not nearly as, um, uh, I don't know. Uh, what the right word to say is to describe John Brown. Uh, he, maybe he wasn't as quite as extreme as John Brown was, but they did, they were, they did know each other, and uh, and Douglas was actually convicted of co conspiring with Brown yeah. on the Harper's Ferry raid. Um, so anyway, so I've just been kind of going through this um, for fun, uh, usually right before bed. But uh, Du Bois is such a great writer.
1: Yes. And,
0: and I find Brown's story just to be very interesting. Um, it, yes. It, to have, To feel so strongly about that issue, to to stand up the way that he did, it's yes. um, it's quite a compelling story. It, um, it, I mean,
1: because I think he felt what we were saying earlier about the evil of it. I think he mm-hmm. was like, "You all are not seeing this evil. This is not, yep. this is awful." And I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna stand before God and not having and not have said or done something to try to rid ourselves of this. Yes,
0: yes. Hawk plays him so perfectly in the show because he's got these moments of just prophetic clarity where he so clearly sees this and then and then a few minutes later he's sort of off his rocker you know but but it's it's such a it's such an interesting picture of of who he was and um so anyway so the biography's been really interesting and um yeah i've i've enjoyed it quite a bit that's awesome well, Dr. Prather, thank you so much for, for being here with us. Um, if our listeners and viewers want to follow your work, where can they find you? I know you have a podcast, Reclaiming Our Canon, right?
1: Reclaiming, I have two, Reclaiming Our Canon and Kush Classics, K-U-S-H Classics. So both of those. And you can also, if you go to drprather.com, it kind of just will help you find all of my um, social media handles, Uh access to both of my podcasts. Um, I think even access to Word About My Books and stuff like that.
0: (laughs) Well, that is great. Well, we really uh, really appreciate you coming on, uh, and I hope that we will get to uh, converse again sometime, because this was great.
1: Yes, it was. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Well, listeners, we will be back in January, and our next book will be Beowulf. So if you want Mm. to read ahead, go ahead and start Beowulf. In the meantime, Keep reading.